Father, we give you thanks for your word. We ask that as we come to read it and to study it and to contemplate it, that you would provide us with uh, clarity, that you would allow us to know you better and to know Jesus better, to have a, a more humble view of ourselves and a more, more glorious, trusting view of you. Bless this time now as we come. In your holy name we pray. Amen. I found a website as we're uh, continuing on there in in Philippians 3, if you want to turn there. I I found a website that offers a a bucket list. A bucket list, of course, is these are the things you want to do before you kick the bucket. And there are 101 things on, on this list and be, being who I am, I, I copied the 101 things and I pasted them into Excel and I, I broke them down into the things that are about you and the things that are about others. And uh, I also broke them down into the things that are just momentary and the things that actually have lasting value. Uh, 80% of the items have to do with you. 20% have to do with other people. Of those items that have to do with you, 70% are just momentary. They're, they're just purely based on the experience, like scuba diving or uh, hitting a bullseye on a dartboard. And the remaining 30% that are longer lasting, for the most part, are impossible to define. They're, they're things like get into Mother Nature or change the world. The woman who wrote this is a a thinking person, a caring person, at least casually Buddhist in in her thinking. She practices meditation. She's seeking enlightenment. That's number 101 after 101, so I don't know if that's a deathbed thing or if she just thought of that at the end. I'm a Buddhist. I guess enlightenment would be good. She thinks about the needy. She at least thinks about the needy. That's number 65. She thinks about the environment. There are a few items on the list that actually have serious consequences, as least, at least as the world counts serious. Uh, saving the dolphins and falling in love were two of those. The problem with the list really is out of 101 items, there's, there's nothing that has anything to do with life after death. This world is it. When she closes her eyes, she expects to close them permanently, to lose consciousness, and to never be back. And so everything on her list is, what would I regret not doing? And even with that mentality, I can't imagine anybody on their deathbed, the doctor comes in and says, I'm sorry, there is nothing we can do for you. And she says, it's okay, at least I learned to knit. But that's the kind of items on on this list. The the truth is that we were born and raised in the very same world that creates that kind of a list. And we can go through these seasons of time and these periods of time when we are just as prone to put too much attention on things that ultimately don't matter as opposed to focusing on the things that do matter. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the the Philippians, as we're going to see this morning, um, 
talks extensively about his own life and how he viewed himself, how he viewed his, uh, his identity and his accomplishments and how they reckoned into his thinking about who Jesus is. So looking at, at chapter 3, we're just going to look at the, the first, uh, I'm going to read through the first eight verses. And uh, our focus will be on 4 through 8. He says there in in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ." So Paul begins here with some, some background into the false teachers, their dogs, their evil workers. He calls them false circumcision or mutilation. They are Judaizers. They are Jews who are going around teaching Gentiles that in order to be Christians, they have to be circumcised. They have to become Jews first to follow the Jewish Messiah. They have to become keepers of the law. We talked about those verses a couple of weeks ago. Paul talks about their confidence in the flesh by way of his confidence in the flesh. In verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. These Judaizers were filled with self-confidence. They may not have known what was real, but they didn't lack any kind of confidence in themselves. They were wrong, but they were solid in their mistaken view. And Paul then goes on to talk about himself. And we're going to take this kind of a little bit at a time. He talks about his identity in verse 4. These are the sorts of things that he could have confidence in. He talks about his identity. He says, uh, I'm sorry, verse 5. He says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. It means he's connected to Abraham. Abraham is the one who received the the covenant, really the covenant of covenants, the the new covenant that we have according to Ezekiel, according to Jeremiah of new birth is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Paul says, when I was eight days old, I was ushered in to this covenant relationship with Yahweh through the promise that was made to Abraham. He says he was of the nation Israel, Now, what that means is that he is connected not only to Abraham, but to Isaac and Jacob. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. God did not choose Ishmael as Abraham's heir for the nation. He chose Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the older. God didn't choose Esau. He chose Jacob. Sovereignly, by the way, Paul says in 
in Romans 9, as, as the scripture says, Esau have I hated, Jacob have I loved, and that's purely by God's own choice. And then the Lord changed Jacob's name to Israel. So, so Paul says, look, I'm connected to Abraham through circumcision, and I'm connected by descent because of Benjamin, we'll get to that in a minute, to, uh, to Isaac and Jacob. I got, a, I got a solid line going all the, way, all the way back to the patriarchs. And then he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Jacob, of course, had 12 sons. Benjamin was the youngest son. I'm the youngest of four. I can tell you that the youngest generally has it made. Grace is over there nodding her head. Kind of sucks to be the oldest, but the youngest, it's, it's pretty good quite often to be the the youngest yeah and mom's the oldest so oh well um benjamin is jacob's youngest son he's also the 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 second son the final son of rachel who is the woman that jacob really loved she died giving birth to him that makes him special when benjamin was born he was born in the promised land he's the only one of jacob's sons to be born in the promised land that's unique the tribe of Benjamin in Deuteronomy 33 is called the beloved of the Lord. When the army of Israel went and marched into battle, it was always the tribe of Benjamin, according to Judges 5 and Hosea 5, that marched in front. They weren't the leaders of the army, but they were the first unit to go out. The territory given by God to the tribe of Benjamin included the city Jerusalem. Israel's first king, Saul, was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, he was not a good king. Not saying he was a good king, but he was first. And that counts for something. The tribe of Benjamin, when the kingdom is is divided after the death of Solomon, it was the tribe of Benjamin mainly who remained faithful to the house of David. In the book of Esther, uh, we, we read the story of an attempted genocide on the people of Israel as they were in captivity in, in Babylon. And, of course, Esther focuses around Esther, who is a a young Jewish woman. Her uncle Mordecai learns of the plot, and because of her being married to the king, the two of them are able to bring about the the salvation of the nation. They were both of the tribe of Benjamin. When the exiles returned from Judah, it says in Ezra chapter 4, verse 1, that the tribes of Judah and Benjamin were really the core. So being of the tribe of Benjamin is a big deal. Paul knew it was a big deal. He celebrates it as a big deal. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day. I'm of the nation Israel, and I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And he says, that makes me a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's his identity. Now, Paul couldn't take any credit for that. He couldn't take credit for any of that. had nothing to do with him. Being a firm believer in the sovereignty of God, I wouldn't call any of those things accidents of birth. I don't believe that there is any such thing as an accident of birth. But clearly this is the sovereignty of God, the will of God being worked out, that he was born when he was, where he was, to the parents he was, of the lineage he was, of the ethnicity that he was. There's a reason that racism is such a, a terrible sin. It's primarily because people take extraordinary, extraordinary pride in the things that they can least control. If, if you're going to take pride in something, and I don't recommend that you do, but if you're going to take pride in something, take pride in your accomplishments. 
but your birth is nothing to do with you. But Paul goes on to talk about his accomplishments in verses 5 and then verse 6. He says, as to the law, he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a a major religious party in Israel. The, The other major religious party were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the religious liberals and the social liberals of the day. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives. They had a strong regard for the word of God and for the law of God. They affirmed the existence of the spiritual realm and of of angels and of the Holy Spirit. They believed in life after death. They believed in a bodily resurrection from the dead. They were missionary-minded. They actually went out and sought to convert others to Phariseeism, to Judaism. They separated themselves from for the sake of holiness, not only from Gentiles, but also from the religious liberals, the Sadducees and others in Israel. They put a very high value on teaching. They formed the synagogue system, which is really the basis of, of what we're doing right now. It's when you gather together. They gathered on the Sabbath, but they would gather together for the sake of teaching and, and uh, encouragement, fellowship, prayer, the reading of Scripture. The apostles coming up under that system quite naturally and I think by, by the will of God adopted that as a way of gathering everybody together for instruction and encouragement. Paul says as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. He was a notorious enemy of the gospel and of Christians and of Christ. In Acts chapter Uh, 22 he admits that he approved of the murder of Stephen in Acts chapter 9 it says and and 8 it says he was personally persecuting the church without mercy without remorse breathing threats breathing murder against the church he was on his way to Damascus to export persecution to another land when Jesus confronted him on the road and saved him by his grace and by his mercy His reputation was so bad that after a time when, as a Christian now, he goes back to Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem wanted nothing to do with him. And it's not until Barnabas comes alongside just a gentle, loving, accepting man, Barnabas recognizes he really has been converted. And Barnabas takes him side by side and, and kind of brings him into the fellowship in Jerusalem. But he doesn't stay long. They were very uncomfortable with him. Now, he's not boasting here about persecuting the church. He's boasting in his zeal. He's saying, I was so devoted to what I believed. I was so committed to what I believed that there was nothing I wouldn't do to defend it. I was absolutely sold out for my religion and my beliefs. And then he says, as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. And in, in the Gospels, of course, the, the Pharisees are presented as hypocrites. Jesus characterized them as hypocrites in Matthew 23. He even said to the people, because the Pharisees were teaching the word of God, do what they tell you to do, but don't do like they do. Because they're hypocrites. Because they, they tithe on mint and they tithe on the herbs in their garden, but they ignore justice, they ignore righteousness, they ignore the weightier matters. There was a, a point where the, the Pharisees had, had uh, developed a, a law and it's based on the, the, the commandment, honor your parents. And the, the law is called 
korban, and korban means that you've got something that is devoted to God, and they develop that to avoid helping their elderly parents. Their parents would be in financial need. There's no Social Security. There's not much by way of savings. And there were times then that their parents would say to their, their, their sons, we need some help. And the sons would say, oh, I would help you, but I've devoted this to God. It's korban. I can't give it to you. I've given it to God. And Jesus said, you have a fine way of overturning the commandments of God to follow your traditions. But Paul says here that as, as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. And I think what he means by that is he wasn't hypocritical. He didn't keep the easy things and neglect the hard things. He did everything that he could to actually follow faithfully all 613 laws that were identified in the Old Testament by the Pharisees. He reminds me in that sense of Martin Luther, who before his conversion would sometimes spend five or six or seven hours in confession. Because you have to confess every sin to be forgiven. If you miss a sin, of course, then, then you, you either spend time in purgatory or maybe even you go to hell for that. And he would spend hours and hours and hours in confession. He would wear out confessors. They would have to, they would have to uh, cycle around because they just got tired of listening to him. And then he would walk out into the street, having been absolved for all of his sins, having confessed it, and remember one he forgot. And he lived in constant discouragement. Paul seems to have not given in to the discouragement. He kept it strenuously. His identity and his achievements are, are impressive. He's trying to make the point to the Philippians, as you look at these false teachers who are making these claims about themselves, they're not the only ones who can make that kind of a claim. In fact, my claim, he says, is better. I have a better reason for confidence. But he, he took a different look at his identity and his accomplishments when he came to Christ. And his game became lost. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, but whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, he doesn't say, whatever things I gained, I lost. The things I obtained went missing. When he uses gain here, he's using the, the word that we would also translate profit or benefit or advantage. The things that were to my profit, the things that were money in the bank to me, he says, became loss. I counted as loss. I counted as a debt. I counted as a need. I counted as a negative. If it had been an advantage, I counted it as a disadvantage to myself. And the difference was that he had come to know Christ. It's important that we understand that Paul doesn't say, whatever, thing, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss in order to be saved. He says, I counted them as loss in order to gain Christ, but he'd already come to the understanding. He'd already been confronted by Jesus on that road. So the question kind of comes down for Paul is, what is Jesus worth? And he says in verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss, everything, because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So it's not just the six things. It's not just those three aspects of identity and those three aspects of accomplishment that he says were, were lost. Uh, we know from Scripture that he was born in Tarsus. He says it's no mean city. It's a big place. It's a big city that's lost to me. It's a disadvantage to me. He says that he was taught by Rabbi Gamaliel within the Jewish rabbinical system. Gamaliel is one of the big hitters. Gamaliel, in the terms of our founding fathers, would be a Thomas Jefferson or an Alexander Hamilton. Don't break into singing. Maybe even a George Washington. Gamaliel was hugely important. Paul says, it's lost to me. It's a disadvantage to me. He was trained as a tent maker and always supported himself through his life. That's, that's loss. He was named for King Saul. That's loss. All of the things that were money in the bank to him, all of the things that were profit to him, he says, I have reconsidered because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may be by all means save some. In Romans and in 1 Corinthians both, he talks about meat offered to idols. And he says, stop worrying about whether or not it was offered to an idol. There's no such thing as an idol. Just eat what's put in front of you unless it's going to cause somebody else to stumble. No Jew would ever say, I'll take a BLT. But Paul would happily eat a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich if you put it in front of him. He didn't care anymore. Well, why? When he, when, he, when he says, I became all things to all men so that by all means I may save some, when he was with a Jew, he, he acted like the Jews. He ate kosher, he observed the prayers and all of that stuff. He dressed the appropriate way. When he was with the Gentiles, he ate what they ate. He dressed like they dressed. He talked like they talked. How could he do that? Well, perhaps it was because everything that had been gained, everything that was identifying to him had been set aside for Christ. Now, it's not that his circumcision is reversed or that he's no longer of of Israel or that he's no longer of the tribe of Benjamin. It's not that his history as a Pharisee goes away. It's not that his zeal for God ever went away. In fact, if anything, it increased. It's not that his knowledge and his regard for the law went away. But he says, I, I, I hold all of that with an open hand. None of it compares to Christ. None of it is worth Jesus to me. And the difference between the two is so great that he uses a really filthy word. In verse 8, he says, For his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The Greek word is skubalon. And if I used a comparable English word, some of you would be offended, shocked, embarrassed. Some might giggle. This is a word that can mean garbage or rubbish. It can mean manure. It can mean dung. It can mean excrement. It was used to describe rotting food and decaying corpses. 
J.I. Packer, a brilliant theologian, said, it is a coarse, ugly, violent word implying worthlessness, uselessness, and repulsiveness. Some of you might have comparable English words going through your head. I don't encourage that, but we are who we are. I'll just say this. No word you think of is too strong. Paul, Paul went the F dash 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 word. I mean, he just went for brokenness. And he said, all of that stuff in my past, all of the things that I counted as money in the bank as my identity and my accomplishments aren't just neutral when it comes to Christ. They're, they're garbage They're not worth preserving. They're not worth being proud of. His word, his word choice here had to shock the Philippians, had to offend them. But so much is at stake because these false teachers have come in and presented this really impressive view. They're Jews, after all. They're they're children of Abraham. They've been circumcised. We're following the the, the Jewish Messiah. Uh, These are men to admire and to look up to. They've lived for the law of God and They've been to Israel and they've been to the temple. And these Gentiles in Philippi are a little bit awestruck. And Paul says, you've got to understand that what you possess in Christ is infinitely greater than anything these men can claim. What he says is hard. It's hard to take in. It's hard to grasp. And he acknowledges that in verse 15. We're going to get into the next part of the passage next week. But in verse 15, he says, Let those of us who are mature, the New American Standard says perfect, but the sense is maturity. Let those of us who are mature think this way. See, it's really hard in our, in our youth and in our strength and, and when we're doing well, when we're swinging well, when we're knocking them out of the park, it's really hard to say that doesn't count in a positive way. As you get older, I think it becomes easier to recognize what just didn't matter, what just doesn't carry any weight. Paul says this, this, is, this is an aspect of maturity. He's still working maybe on, on some of this himself. And I love what he says in verse 15, if, if, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. He's not going to beat them to death over their identity and over their accomplishments. He just says as you grow in Christ, as Jesus stands out more and more to you, as you know him better, all of those other things are going to fade in significance. So we we started out by asking, what are you living for? Every one of us in here knows that eternity is coming. Every one of, of us knows that life goes on after death. We know that this life is over before you know it in the blink of an eye. We know that our eternity is being determined now because of our faith in Jesus. That life is either going to be in the presence of God in peace and joy and utter contentment, or it will be separated from God in utter torment. And every single human being on the face of the earth is going to reach that dividing line on the day of judgment. It's why the proclamation of the gospel is so, so desperately important. So what are you living for? 
is a really good question. It's a good question for us to ask. It's a good question for us to ask others. And I, and I want you to think about this too. When you are living yourself, when you are living for something, you are giving your life for something. And when you give your life for something, you're dying for that thing. What are you dying for? What are you willing to give your life for? Paul says there's nothing better to give your life for than Jesus Christ. The beautiful thing, of course, is that Jesus is a generous God. He's a loving God. He's a merciful God. He's a kind God. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are gracious beyond compare. And so the more we can give our lives to him, the more others have of us. The more we can give our lives to the Lord, the more we benefit others, not the less. This is not a bucket list that's primarily aimed at ourselves and our momentary pleasures. This is really a denial of self more and more and more as, as time goes on. Every day brings us another step closer to eternity. It, it really is my heartfelt prayer for every single one of you in here that when that time comes, you won't be thinking you missed out on something. That woman who created that bucket list, if that doctor comes in at some point, as he probably will, and says there's nothing we can do, do you really think that she's going to say, at least I learned a foreign language? If she really thinks now, and I, I've got no idea who this woman is or how old, old she is, anybody who thinks, at the end of my life, that's what will sustain me as death approaches, they're a fool. And they're also completely wrong. I've been with people as they've died. I've been with unbelievers if they've, as they've died. Not one of them says, at least I got to go on a cruise. They die in terror. They die in horror. But the interesting thing is, I've been with Christians as they've died. I've been with young people as they've died. And I've been with elderly believers as they've died. And has that door begins to move open, the Lord's peace covers them. I heard John MacArthur say one time that no Christian ever needs to fear death because in that moment the Lord will be with you. There's not going to be the fear, and I truly believe that. But it's such a huge thing, it's such a big thing. Paul says, look, this depends on our maturity. So don't leave it until the end. to pursue Christ, to know that knowing Jesus is of surpassing value to everything else. And so my my prayer for us is that verse 8 will settle down within our souls, that we would count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that those Judaizers invaded Philippi and Paul had to write and address it. Nobody else in scripture with the exception of, of Jesus himself, maybe Moses, maybe David, Lord, really stands out as a giant of the faith. And yet, as we see here, Paul would have dropped everything for the sake of knowing Jesus. 
There's not a single thing Paul would have said, if I'm going to be a Christian, I must have this too. And he lost more in terms of relationship and in terms of standing, in terms of his own personal security and comfort and health than, than most of us can imagine. And you met him every step of the way. And so, Lord, I ask that you do for us what you did for him and convince us that the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ makes everything else unworthy of fear, unworthy of jealousy, unworthy of trying to maintain or defend. And I thank you, Lord, that the more secure we are in Christ, the more settled we are in our relationship with him, the freer we are to serve others around us and to love them well. I lift up my brothers and sisters and I ask that you would bless them with your peace. That you would fill our hearts with the gospel and fill our mouths with the gospel. We thank you for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.